Welcome to episode 38 of the Talentopoly podcast, How to Work in a Team. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and as always, I'm joined by Brandon Corbin. Hello. <laughs> and our guest this episode is Stephen Williams. How's it going, Steve? It's going all right. How are you guys? Thanks for joining us on the on this podcast episode. No problem. I'm excited. Before we get started, though, uh, I'd like to mention the uh, the Talentopoly job board. This episode of the podcast is brought to us by our very own job board. (laughs) (laughs) It pays the bills and it's been around for about a month now. We've had about 15 jobs posted on here. The jobs are mainly developer jobs, uh, but design jobs are welcome. Uh, We've got everything from Java, .NET, C++, some SQL, uh, some iOS even, a lot of cool stuff on there. So if you're uh, interested in a new job or just keeping your uh, eyes out for some exciting new opportunity, I recommend you check that out. But, and, uh, and how do I get there, Jared? You go to talentopoly.com slash jobs. And there's also a jobs tab conveniently located in the header of the website. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, And we have a newsletter as well. So if you want to not have to check the website every week, you can just get it, it delivered, the latest list of jobs, right in your inbox every Wednesday, I believe it is. And That's how I get it. Yeah, that's how that's how all the cool kids are doing it now. Seriously, I do, and I get it, and I actually read it, and I don't read that stuff ever. Wait, so you actually do subscribe to it? Yeah. Awesome. That's you would great. know that if that's, you were mining for well, information. We, ha- we have 100 subscribers to it. I'm kind of, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, it took a long time to get to that, 100,000. <laughs> All right. Uh so beverages. Brandon, we will start with you like we usually do. I just opened up a wood chuck. Mm. Uh a hard cider. I don't know what this is the amber one. Uh this is actually the third one that I've opened since we started <laughs> talking on Skype. <laughs> so I am now well Chuggy properly huh? lubricated. Have we talked about uh, woodchuck before have you had that on the podcast i think so i might have had it once or twice before my wife likes that she'll drink those yeah it's good i i mean when i'm not in the mood for a hop or a wine i'll grab a cider excellent well i am drinking a prankster belgian style golden ale picked these up earlier in the week they sell them by the four pack and what i like about it is because i love belgian ales uh as you know brandon and yep. you know they've, they've got a good punch uh in contained in about eight percent alcohol on average for a belgian so i just love that and just good flavor to it in general like a lot of times they make it with orange in the in the recipe you get some fruits in there uh but it's nice because this is like eight dollars for a four pack and a lot of your belgians get really expensive and you'll be at 12 or 14 bucks for a four pack pretty easily for sam's club uh this is not sam's these (laughs) Sam's does not have this sort of thing. So I go to 21st Amendment here in town and, mm-hmm. and pick up my uh, my weekly four-pack of Belgians. But that is what I'm drinking. What are you drinking, Stephen? Well, um, I heard that Brandon was the wine guy and you were the beer guy, so I thought I'd go get a local cider. But apparently uh, <laughs> that fell through because Brandon today is the cider guy. But, um <laughs> You know, I'm down here on the, the south side of downtown Indianapolis, and we've got our own fair selection of beverages. So I went down to New Day Meadery and uh, got some uh, mead cider. Ooh. So this is the um, Johnny Chapman. So it's the, the honey wine in that. It, it goes through you pretty quick. So it, <laughs> nice. it's good stuff. Do you happen to know what the uh, alcohol volume on that is? Uh, I think it's uh, just over seven. 
Um, so deal. it's, you know, closer to a wine than a beer, but, um, it's the, the sugar content in the, the honey, right. Uh, gets into your blood pretty quick. How sweet is it? Would you say, is it like sweet, too sweet to have two of them in a row or no, they're, um, surprisingly dry. Uh, most of their wines are surprisingly dry and so are their ciders. They create a nice, uh, you know, blank canvas for whatever fruits that they put into it. So I, I need to try that because yeah. this, this stuff, this woodchuck, man, I'm, I'm having a stroke, I think, <laughs> and because now, and I've just realized I've consumed about 70 grams of sugar. Right. Um, and that's not really an exaggeration at all. It is. It's, it's just, I'm, it's like I've been at a movie theater and all I've been doing is eating Twizzlers and Ho-Ho's. Right, amazing. And it, it, you know, it's not the cheapest stuff, but it's it's pretty good quality. So you can get your growler refill. Growler costs about five bucks for the bottle. Awesome. And then it's like twelve dollar refills though, so oh, okay. it's a, it's a little more pricey. But they're really nice folks, and it's it's good quality stuff. Excellent. All right, uh, let's let's get into our topic here. So we're going to be talking about a topic that I think is uh, something that every developer. Uh, has had to deal with at least, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say most developers have probably struggled at this a little bit, and are you know they need to get a little bit better at it because developers are are we're, we kind of work alone a lot of the time. You know, we we spend a lot of time in front of the computer by ourselves, and working in a team is probably not the most natural setting for us. So mm-hmm. we thought it'd be interesting to talk about how can we work better in a team, and. Uh, just real quick, Stephen, what is your background? Why are you talking to us about how to work in a team? Well, um, I think most of you guys are uh, more consulting and you know hired gun type. Uh, most of my uh, experience has been teams, uh, smaller teams, the larger teams, uh, larger companies. So um, I would say I'm, I'm pretty well versed on the topic. Excellent. All right. So... One of the first questions I have when I start thinking about working in, in a team, because uh, I'm, I definitely, you know, I, I've worked in a few teams, but like you said, most of the time I do work alone on a project, so I get the whole module or large feature set that that they want built out, the client wants built out, and you know, I can just kind of choose what what part I work on in which order, but I'm going to be working on all those parts and get them all fitting together. Mm-hmm. In a team, you've got to divide that work up. What if, can you talk a little bit about your experience and some takeaways that you've you have from what has worked well and what hasn't worked well and figuring out how to divvy that work up? Sure. Um, well, you know, I've, I've gone through a couple uh, different approaches to that even more recently, where you have teams that are divvied up um, via functionality, via skill set. Um, you know, your UI, um, front end stuff, and then your middle tier guys can be in, in separate teams. And then they're kind of uh, matrixed out, or you know, to, to each project. Or you can do something along the lines of product teams, where you have a set of folks from um, various different skill sets that um, focus on one product for an extended amount of time. Pros and cons I find on both sides. Um, predominantly, you know, if, if you're working with a functional team. Um, you have a bunch of UI guys. I, I'm a UI developer, so I'll speak mainly to that. Um, who are running into similar problems, and they can start to share that knowledge freely within the team. Um, from a product perspective, you know, 
if you're working in product teams, um, everyone knows about the product. So you're not having to re-ramp up people into, you know, the history of the product or those kinds of specific problems to the product, but you're not able to share that uh, particular technical problems like UI problems um, across those products as easily. Mm. So some of those pros and cons that um, get uh, forgotten at times. Well, in the teams that have worked well that you've been on, who has been the one dictating uh, the division of labor? Is it more done by committee in the successful teams or is it done by a project manager? What would you say has worked well in the past? What has worked well is probably the um, the teams organizing within a product to say, okay, this is the skills and these are the folks working together and really kind of owning into, um, you know, we're the front end guys. This is how we're going to do this and we're going to help each other out. Um, and then finding the bridge between the, the skills within the product, if that makes sense. Uh, the reality is what generally happens um, is that you have some kind of declaration that, you know, uh, this is the way the company is going to organize for the time being. And you, you work within that um, definition, right, whether it be product or skill or um, whatever other direction they decide to go. Do you think this sort of thing should be a part of the company-wide culture or do you think the UE guys, it's okay for them to figure out how they like to do it? I mean, I, I, I kind of – a lot of teams probably don't have so many people that are able to say, like, here's just purely the UE guys. You know, a lot of people probably have to wear different hats too, right? So well, there, there may be one general team. And when yeah. you have that general team, you know, should you – should you just rely on coordinating that within the team? You know, you've got different personalities. Is that, is that always going to work or, or do you have to figure out what your team is like before you decide? I think you're, you would be much better off taking some time to really look at the skills, um, interpersonal skills, as well as technical skills that you have within your team and deciding who can, you know, speak for the team. I mean, like you said, we're developers. We usually are heads down just doing our job. Um, get out of the way. Let me write some code. But every once in a while, you'll find one of us who's willing to speak up for the rest of the team or speak up for some of the, the more specific um, dynamics of the team. So finding those, um, finding, finding those personalities and speaking to those Streaks and weaknesses at those levels, I think, will really um, help your team gel better. And uh, that that gelling dynamic will take you further versus arbitrary division between skill sets versus product. Yeah, just in us talking about it right now, I'm realizing more and more really why this can be a hard thing for a team to figure out and get right because there isn't necessarily just one way to do it. You know, that's so context specific to the, the personalities, like you said, who are involved and, you know, the different skill sets. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering right now, Brandon, uh, we haven't talked too much about certain team based projects you've been on in the past, but what type of team experience have you had and how's division of work been done and stuff that you've been involved in? You know, um, uh, mine was much more of a 
uh, and I, I don't want to say chaotic in terms of uh, decentralized. Um, that definitely is much more of the environment that I've always liked to work in where we all just say, okay, look, I know you're really good at that. I'm really good at this. Here's the thing that we have to achieve. Let's mm -hmm. just go and do that. And we all have to stay connected as far as communication and, and all of that. And everybody has an opportunity to be able to, you know, to, to mainline to, you know, some expert or another. That's always been at least uh, now, is it the most productive? I don't know. Uh, I just know that that's the only way that I want to do it. I, I can't stand having because I have, you know, definitely during the consulting days where you had just one guy who was just trying to manage everything and delegating it. And, and, and it just always it was never a pleasant experience. And the product always seems subpar uh, versus kind of the chaotic method, which um, let things happen more naturally uh, and things got done on time. It might have been. I don't know. So, so I like the decentralized chaotic method personally. Well, then you mentioned the product can be subpar when you have that type of dictatorship. Why do you think that is? Can you know go into that a little more? Because you don't have an opportunity to uh, to to find out where you were wrong, right? We all make these assumptions when we're developing a product, and we think, okay, we just have to do this, this, and this, and then you see that, and you're like, no, this is totally wrong. And and only a person who's really delving into it, putting their heart and soul in it, can really see that this is not right. So I'm going to change it, and they have to have the freedom to change it. If you're in a, you know, you have to go to the project manager and say, look, this isn't right. We actually have to do it this way. So it's easier to use or, you know, whatever flaw that you discovered, uh, where if it's just a big machine, it seems to outproduce or it just produces all the stuff that seems wrong. Mm. GitHub has yeah. been pretty vocal about this. They, they go around and they talk about what it's like to work at GitHub and they write lots of blog posts about it. And it seems like they adhere to your thinking, Brandon, where they really... It's it's not that any one person is in charge. You're in charge of yourself, so you're your own manager, and you get to decide what you want to work on. And nobody else really tells you go build feature X. Yeah. You know they they all talk and they are communicating with each other. And I think that's you mentioned it too. Is as long as the communication is there, yeah. what what types of tools have you guys used? How do you coordinate communication among your teams? What's worked well? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think um, identifying the tools that folks are already using. Um, uh, for instance, you know, if everyone's on Gmail, don't force the team to go over to Yahoo or to go over to um, some other arbitrary, oh, I don't know, Microsoft tool um, that doesn't do spell check. Um, I don't know. I might be speaking personal experience i'm not sure um but you know it, identifying those tools you know i mean you could have something that's all facebooky and super socially and posting in that fashion but like really it doesn't matter unless people are willing to use it yeah right you know it could it could be smoke signals um if that's what people like to how people like to communicate then let them communicate via smoke signals you know uh, what were you gonna say brandon uh, you know, for me, and and you can you can say that I'm old and whatnot, but Instant Messenger is is by far like everybody. Just be on Instant Messengers, have the app running, and you can you know say you're offline when you need to. Not just, I mean, but that has been like the biggest thing for any anyone that I'm on, and it's just consistent. I don't care if you're on you know AIM or if you're on you know uh, some foreign jabber server, whatever it is, I've got them all. I'm going to be able to connect to you and we'll be able to communicate as we need. That's been the biggest thing for me. Do you do chat rooms in there as well? Nope. So you're just doing one-on-one? -on -one? Yep. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's usually what we end up doing is, is 
some kind of instant messenger and then the flavor really doesn't matter. But I think one of the interesting parts of that is uh, if folks want to get up and they want to go do face-to-face conversation, they can do that. But you can do an instant messenger and it's not, for some reason, I don't think it's as intrusive as email. You know, email, you get this prompt that pops up and you're like, oh, I got to respond to that. And everyone assumes that you're going to be responding to an email instantly, right? But mm-hmm. if you want a short conversation instead of a dozen rounds through an email, you know, uh, you can do that over instant messenger, get that answer quickly. And it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't break into your development flow. Mm-hmm. as uh, obtrusively. I don't know if that's what you've experienced. Totally. Well. Totally. I wonder, it, I wonder if part of it is because you don't generally type as much text into an IM as you would in email as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a mental dynamic of like, this isn't formal. This is just me throwing the thought out there. I don't have to uh, shape it, uh, wordsmith it as much as I would an email. And log and store all of the logs. You always have the off the record option, and that's fine. Use that for when you want to go hit on, you know, some secretary or whatever. Sure. But always record it, record it all, because then that just comes in so handy to be able to go, what the hell was he talking about? And go back through, and there it is. Any little code snippets that people end up throwing back. Yeah. Yep. I'm probably one of the worst, but I'm always like, I know you just sent me something. Can't find it. Where is it? Uh, forward that to me again. Or. I am that to me again. Yeah, know? that's the worst. Yeah, I'm then I'm the worst. I've, so. I've found a lot. I've had good success so far with a chat uh, application called HipChat, and mm-hmm. it's it's basically like Campfire that Thirty Seven Signals makes, but uh, I think it's a little bit more robust. You know, because it's the only product that they really work on. They were recently purchased, but it was their only product before. Uh, and it, I like it because you can create rooms. So we'll have rooms that are very specific to products, or if there's a large uh, part of a project, then that could get its own room. We can also have our GitHub commits automatically go out to it. We yes. can, when you post uh, code to it, it knows that it identifies its code and it does syntax highlighting and makes it look kind of pretty and readable, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, collapses it down to about 15 lines. And then if you want to see the whole thing, just expand it. So it does a lot of neat things like that. And it has an iPhone app and Android app and all that. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that because I like the idea of knowing that even if I have a one-on-one conversation, I should have it in that room about that product. Right. And then other team members that weren't necessarily needing to be part of the conversation at least can go and look at the transcript of it if they ever need to. But right. that's a uh, – and, and so I'll argue that I think there almost there, – there might be two different things, right? Because the fact that, that the, the, the instant message is one-on-one, right. there's no – no one else is going to see it. That other stuff is going to manifest than when I have to write something that Sally might see or I might hold back something because I don't want to hurt Bill's feelings because I think his stuff is shit, you know, or whatever. True. Um, so that's that's one thing that I've seen because like we did Yammer and I've tried you know I, I I want to get into a campfire and and all of that and I think I will with View You but uh, well just <laughs> quick side note you can do a one on one in. I believe campfire as well, but for sure you can do it in hip chat. And I do actually find myself in the one-on-ones a lot. Are so, people always in it though? Well, it shows you their presence just like an IM. And okay. if they're not online, the default setting is that when you mention them or if they you mention them, them in a general room using the at symbol, or if you talk to them directly in their one-on-one, you know, everybody has a named channel and you can go yeah. into that. 
So I could go into the Brandon tab and I can message you, even though you're offline, it's going to send you an email saying, Hey, Jared just sent you this message. And then usually somebody, if they can, will hop on within like 15 minutes and then we can chat. Yeah. Now, have you guys done anything with, I think it's called Jeeves. Uh, I've seen a system. I think one of our other, um, the, the company I'm currently with, it's fairly large. So we have a lot of product silos and, and each one ends up doing these things a little bit differently. Um, but one has a chat room type scenario like that where they can actually like um, run build commands and test commands. Oh, yeah. Like where they're like, Jeeves, build from commit XYZ, and it'll go and do that. Um, have you guys worked with anything like that? Oh uh, Well, there's Hubot, which is a really popular one that GitHub made and open sourced, and it works over lots of different things, including HipChat and Campfire and IRC. And you can build all these recipes for it. You know, the open right. source community is contributing tons of recipes. I haven't actually done that yet because other than firing off my builds, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, a lot of the rest of the stuff is just funny stuff. You know, sure. I know GitHub will use it to queue up songs. One of the ways that they try to create camaraderie among all of them, because 50% of their team is remote, is that they can tune into this one, uh, their own private radio station no matter where you are. And then you you have like a jukebox style player for it. So people can just throw songs into the queue. And then, you know, around the world, all of you at the same time are listening to that same song as if you were in the office together. So they use Hubot for that. I just read something about Stripe last night, what it's like to work at Stripe. They said they have their IRC bot that tells them when lunch has arrived because they, as a team, always eat lunch together. Right. So and they can actually... They all vote on what they want for lunch through their IRC bot, and then the bot tells them, hey, lunch is ready. Go go to the dining room. So, see, I could definitely see some benefits to that because there's certain – like even with like builds and whatnot, you know, we get a lot of email that goes through our system that's just build failed, build started, build triggered, uh, update to this uh, environment, update to that environment. And if you had something that was in a chat format, yep. um, then it would be, I mean, true, your emails are timeline, you know, you can get that same timeline look and feel there. But if it was in a chat, it seems like you could be like, oh, there it was. And if everyone's in that room, then they all see it at the same time, you know. Yeah. And For- also it's in that room. Like you just yes. said, that's an important thing not to gloss over because in your email, everything's in there and everything's a peer. But when you segregate by room, now you're right. siloing that noise off so that you only need to see that stuff when you're caring about that product. And I really enjoy that. I don't – the last thing I need is more emails, honestly. Exactly. Is there a Jabber client done in JavaScript yet? Has anybody tried to make that? Well, Mebo basically. Mebo yeah, could Mebo, do Jabber. They recently closed down. And yeah. yeah, they did. Well, they got bought out. <laughs> they sent me the, I'm so sorry, we're leaving. Gtalk oh. is also completely Jabber-based. A lot of people don't know that, but it is yep. Jabber, and that's all JavaScript. So, hmm. yes. <laughs> but uh, the there's also the guys that did Convore.io are doing this new thing called Grove.io, which is kind of a nice, fancy front end to IRC and makes it easy for companies to set up IRC that, and it creates something that feels like campfire or hip chat, but you okay. don't have to pay monthly fees. You just, I don't think you pay monthly fees for that. I think there's like a purchase or something. You set up your server so you can do that too. But, uh, so the other one last 
uh, app that I was thinking of just now too is FlowDoc because we're talking about like firing off build commands and getting your GitHub commit messages coming into the rooms. And right. FlowDoc takes that even further. They don't just rely on like HipChat just relies on integrations, kind of like how GitHub relies on integrations. But with FlowDoc, mm-hmm. they are really built right into the app. The whole point of it is to create this feed. It's like a news feed that could be messages, but it could be all these other types of things. And it's like user voice could plug into it. Your GitHub can plug into it, whether your build fails. And it's it doesn't look quite like a chat room. It's made more to be, you know, here's all the news that's associated with each of your projects so that your team can quickly see a snapshot of like even pivotal tickets that were made, you know, right. show up for everybody to see that type of thing. It's kind of brings it all into one unified interface. And that's kind of interesting. I've always envisioned some kind of a dashboard essentially where you see tests running, you see those kinds of builds coming and going and you can pinpoint, you know, okay, test broke, big red light goes off and it points to a particular um, uh, commit that says, okay, this is the last commit and it touched the same files that this test touches. So must be that guy. So like even, you know, put a red light over each developer's desk and like that thing goes off and like, all kinds of embarrassment and shame goes upon that person. So they never, ever, ever do it again, you know, I mean, just whatever, just something where it's like, okay, this is the community that you're working in. And it's not just you, um, banging out code for yourself, for your paycheck. It's the side of their side effects on everybody, you know, and just connecting people at that level. And some some people do them, you know, into submission, but also to just connect them in that same way. Yeah, so that you're all working together for you know to avoid the failed unit tests and, exactly. and push code out. And there are companies that actually will put a stoplight, like they will get a real stoplight, red, green, yellow, and put right. it in the middle of the office and wire it up so that it turns red when the unit tests on the continuous integration server fail. Yeah, exactly. I know uh, Atomic Objects in Michigan, they do that, and Developer Town, uh, I believe, does that as well here in Indianapolis. They actually have a real stoplight. That's kind of cool. Uh, so we're talking a lot about tools, which is cool. We could talk about this probably forever, but let's let's get back a little bit to how to work well in a team. Now that we've talked a lot about how, what types of tools you can use to work well within a team and communicate, how about when you just have those types of members that are lazy or slacker? And you don't even feel like they should really be on the team or maybe they're just uninspired. How, mm-hmm. how have you dealt with – like have you guys encountered people like that before and how have you dealt with those types of people? Usually I hope that there's an, enough of a good um, interview process to deal with um, the lazy and the slacker. Uh, obviously there's always an opportunity for those folks to s- slip through the cracks where they just interview well. Or they just have a nice smile on their face and you just believe whatever they say. But um, I, I have ran into that once in a while. Um, unfortunately, it seems that um, unless you're in a place where the dynamic of your team is such where you can like really um, encourage change for that person, it's kind of like, okay, well, let me communicate this to management. Not in such a way where it's like, man, this guy just sucks, but in a way where like expressing the effects upon the team, right? And how it's kind of slowing the progress of the the project and the team as a whole. And hopefully they'll get the hint and get to the point where like 
oh, I don't know, a contract's not renewed or something of that nature. But it, it gets so challenging. Um, and maybe that just depends on the nature of the company. You know, once someone's in the door and they're in a, a project, how long is the process to move them off or how expensive is that process, you know? Right. So in an ideal world, this wouldn't happen. But sure. but and you're saying this has happened to you in the past though, right? Oh, yeah. So how, exactly how did you deal with it and did that work? <laughs> um, well, I, personally, I tried, you know, to to figure out, you know, what are the motivations of that individual? Um, are they here? Is there is there any kind of barrier, right? Is there something that you can push through to really get them to want to work harder and really want to invest? And or was there just a bad fit in the first place? Did we do, do they have the skills that we thought they had? You know, identify their strengths and weaknesses and try to speak more to their strengths than their weaknesses and give them an opportunity to flourish somewhere to find some level of success. Right. Um, uh, and if I can't do that, try to find someone else in the team who might fit better with them. Like a person, maybe there's a personality conflict, um, whatever it is, you know, uh, what the one particular scenario that I can think of, man, the dude went around to everybody on the team and no one could get any work out of them um, or any uh, valuable work out of them. Let's put it that way. So it, it was just one of those things where each person on the team had to like go through that process. Can't, maybe, maybe it is a personality conflict. Nope, not. He's, you know, same problem with me as it was with the last guy. So, you know, just working through that. Um, so that, that scenario wasn't necessarily a ended in a positive note. So how did that start though? You, did you go to management and tell them this, this doesn't seem to be working. Maybe we compare them with somebody else. Yeah, that basically is how it went down. Um, you know, they came on, we thought we knew what his skill set was. Um, that one, he, he, the interview process that we had in place, uh, kind of lapsed. Um, Usually we do like a phone interview and then bring them in for a face-to-face. Well, the face-to-face got forgotten for some reason. I don't know how that but face-to-face. It was all over the phone and all of the conversations over the phone were, oh, yeah, I can do that. And when reality set in, no, they couldn't do that, you know, kind of thing. So, so it wasn't really that he was a slacker. It was really that he was out of his depth. Totally. In this instance, it was. Um but maybe I don't know. Maybe he could. You know, it's one of those things. It's difficult to say. You know, why is it that someone can't do the job that they were set out to do? You know, I guess there there could be that point of ownership where they just don't want to do more than what they've done. You know, where you get the slacker type mentality. Um, right. That's, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, how about in the situation? Well, I guess Brandon. Before we move on. Do you have any experience where you've dealt with people that just weren't pulling their own weight? Uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, so uh, at a pendant, which was the recruiting agency I ran in 06 through 08, um, I had I had I had a lot of people that didn't, and one was the uh, was a developer, and literally all he did all day was surf porn. 
Wow. <laughs> All worked. day. And, and so I, I, I saw him and then I, so I finally sent an email to everybody and I said, look, you know, if, if work isn't getting it done, I'm going to monitor what you do. And I was like, I hate to do it, but if that's, if, if I'm not seeing that work is getting done, then I'm going to monitor. And sure, he kept doing it, kept doing it. And so finally I took him into the uh, conference room and he sat down, I sat down and I just kind of looked at him. He said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, well, hopefully, you know, at some point we might be able to work together in the future. But today is your last day at Appendant, which was uh, my closing statement. So, Well, wow. you know, that's the interesting dynamic, though, there, because, I mean, you were in a position of authority where you could make those statements. Yeah. But a peer, right, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's awkward as hell, too. Right. I mean, you can confront the person. Um and and even in that, um, you know, you can attempt to do it in such a way where, well, I see your and I see your thoughts on this, but this is what I know from my experience, blah, blah, blah. And hopefully you can bring it in a in a positive light and speak to their pros as well as their cons. But generally speaking, you know, it's really difficult to go to your manager and say, Look, I don't want to be whiny, but this dude's just not cutting it, you yeah. know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about in the situation where you have somebody that is a good developer, you know, they have been pulling their own weight, but they want to implement something that reaches out into many parts of the system. So that it's not just their own little feature that they've been given to work on. The way they, let's say the way they want to construct the database is very specific and it's the entire schema for the database. And they're trying to go around and get the group to be on board with that. You know, and you've you have an issue with that, or somebody else on the group has an issue with the with that, and they want to do it a different way. How do you mediate that in a situation where, like you guys are saying, where the group is working as a bunch of peers, and there's not necessarily a project leader that just comes down and says on one side or the other, "This is the way we're going to do it." How do you how do you take care of those technical disputes? Have you guys run into a situation like that? <laughs> Brandon, have you run into a situation like that? Um. Uh, 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 I'm going to be honest with you here, Jared. Yeah, no, I I, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> it's a three. It's a three siders. I, I was I was I was expecting that to be uh, uh, answered by somebody other than myself. <laughs> I, I think Stephen might be taking care of the background noise that I'm that sorry. you heard. It's a little uh, uh, family squabble in the background. <laughs> no problem. It, it's actually not a first for the podcast. We're a very family friendly podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Raji King, when he was on, he had his kids in the background. You know, we could hear him the whole time. And he's like, hey, I hope that's cool. Like, this this is my house where I'm doing this from. And, you know, and we're like, yeah, this is totally cool. We all have children. Absolutely. Yeah. Time and no one likes to go to bed. Uh, <laughs> technical but, disagreements. Yeah, technical disagreement. Well, you know, I like personally, I have a couple of um, – not pet peeves, but technical visions that I, I and, and continually am pitching towards towards team, towards management, towards other folks. Be like, hey, let's slow down. Let's take a moment. Let's do this right this time um, through this fashion. You know, um, I want to introduce uh, as a UI developer. There's some more opportunities with technologies like Node, Socket.io, things like that. You know. Um, that I'm continually um, conversing about. And it's just finding the right niche and getting the right people um, on board with you when it comes to your peers. And when it comes to like 
a technical disagreement. Um, I think it's kind of the same idea, but to the opposite end, you know, if you, if there's one person who comes forward and says, let's use, you know, let's use super glue because that's going to be the best way to do this thing. And we're just like, uh, that's just not going to work whatsoever. Um, hopefully you can bring someone else alongside that if they're not buying what you're telling them that they can say, Hey, this is not going to work. And this is why, you know? So, right. well, but maybe I'll, I'll just throw in there. Maybe it's not that black and white. Right. You know, it could be shades of gray here where they say we want to, you know, maybe it's not even like as simple as this, like two drastically different technologies, but it could be just the way that the pattern that they want to use or the schema they want to use or something very specific to the project given yeah. the current technology set. Yeah. You know, how do you deal with that if they really are putting their foot down and another guy's putting his foot down and Shame. you don't necessarily have a project manager? <laughs> you don't have a project manager. You can't just go run to mom and dad and tell them to make a decision. Right. <laughs> or is this a great reason to always have a project manager? No. No, okay. It's not a great reason to always have a project manager. No. Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, I that's team dynamic type stuff, you know. Hopefully, um, uh, and it's bound to happen at at some point in time, you'll get trapped in that situation where, you know, I don't know if you can promise to them that they can do it their way next time or (laughs) whatever. But that may not not even be, you know, you want to do what's best for the project and maybe the next time they still, you feel, won't be proposing something that's best for the project, right? Project, yeah. I mean, if you can't communicate to your teammates – and to the individual, the pros and cons specifically, and lay them out, and they're still refusing to see um, the, the the reason why that doesn't work. You know, sometimes it gets down to just raw personality conflicts, or right. raw, you know, and it can and be really tough. Mind, you know, and, and identifying at what point in time um, is this a technical uh, discussion, and at what point in time is this a personality thing? You so. Know? dealing with people you know when 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 you decide that it's a personality thing here's Mm -hmm. here's the trick is that you shame them shame (laughs) is an insanely powerful tool that people don't use enough in the business world and all it takes is like the first time they bring it up you laugh at them like you think they're joking so you're not like purposely (laughs) being a dick right where you're like oh (laughs) you're stupid but you laugh like you're joking and then that just gives them just enough doubt that then you just continually like this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard you say. I can't even believe we're having this conversation. Would you like me to go through the pros again? Right. So you shame them and you just slowly break their spirit and eventually they'll give up. And if you can get somebody up here to agree with you and then go and get an executive that agrees with you, then it's all over and you've won. I've done that and I've, I've won on the wrong side too. Like the technology I was fighting for should never have been used, but I used that tactic and, and I won and, uh, the company really shouldn't have made that decision. Excellent. So yeah, I kind of question that advice thoroughly then. (laughs) No, no, no. But I'm, what I'm saying is it works to get what you want. Well, yeah, but the ultimate goal should be what's best for the project. Yeah, whatever. Well, there's a lesson to be learned there, just that power of, of those relationships and then uh, identifying, you know, in the places where you want to promote a good idea, you promote that good idea. In the places where you want to uh, maybe suppress an idea, mm-hmm. 
them an opportunity to pitch a better idea in another direction, you know, hey, that doesn't work here, but it might work over here. Or that idea that you brought up the other day, we're great in this situation, you know, that's a great point. Move it away from the terrible idea and move it towards, you know, a, a good, good solution, a good opportunity, not just say no, but say, point out that's, places. that's very humane <laughs> <laughs> compared to my angle yeah your way could burn some bridges there brandon yeah it never did <laughs> it worked and people because again once they feel shame they don't think they feel attacked they feel bad they mm. feel like they were stupid they felt like they made the wrong decision and again i'm not saying that's right or wrong i'm just saying it as a as a technique to get what you want in the corporate world well, here, let me let me give a quick story here. And the, this is the reason I keep bringing up the schema as the example, because what prompted this question is a, a personal conflict that I had within a, within one of my teams in the last 12 months. And it was uh, one of the guys uh, had been tasked with starting a, a new project. And so he, he alone got to work on it for about two to three months. So during that time, he built up a lot of emotional investment, a lot of technical debt, you know, based on the way that he liked to do things. And he's a he's a very, very good programmer, better programmer than I am. And so he was able to go through and in two to three months, build out a substantial portion of this product. But then we had about two months left in the in the dead until the deadline. We needed to bring on some additional developers to really get it to completion. And at that point, since nobody had really been involved in this you know, other than him, you know, he had been able to make every decision exactly how he saw fit. Mm -hmm. And we took a look at that schema about three months into his project. And, you know, he came from a strong database background. He definitely has very strong database skills, but we, you know, myself and uh, one or two of the other guys on the team didn't think that that schema was the most well laid out. It was, is pretty, it seemed convoluted to us. You know, we had asked for a diagram to really try to understand it. We actually spent, I mean, I personally spent at least five hours looking. I mean, it was a very complicated, entirely data-driven type of schema. So you had a lot of tables in there that you were storing all kinds of polymorphic data that, you know, related to multiple other tables. And it was a very complicated schema. And structures, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty, it was the most intense schema that I've dealt with, most complicated and it was, you know, he had really thought about the problem space really well over the last three months, but it probably, in my opinion, over-architected a little bit. I mean, there were certain edge cases he was allowing for that may not have even, you know, the business case for them would never really present themselves. So, you know, why add this additional complication, these additional layers, if we didn't really need to incur that technical debt? And so we started, you know, I started a plan of starting to analyze it first. So I understood it. I sat down with him for, oh man, like afternoon after afternoon, going through the schema and the reasons for his decisions. And, you know, I really, there was such a depth to this. It took a long time to understand it. And when I felt that I had a good understanding, start to redesign the schema. Mm. And that's where the conflict took place. You know, redesign the schema was pretty much out of the question in his mind. There was no way that that was going to be acceptable. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't even... Like, let's sit down and talk about the differences, what you're proposing. It was, no, I've thought about it. This is the right way. Yeah. And so it was the first time I've ever dealt with something like that before, where I'm dealing with somebody who's very capable, extremely motivated. The guy was pouring tons of hours into this thing. But at the end of the day, I disagreed with the way he was laying out the database. And I'm a huge proponent of division of labor by duty, you know, by by sections of the of the application. So I like putting people in charge of what they feel they're best at. 
right. and make them basically the project manager for that section. So, mm-hmm. for instance, like permissions within the – this is a giant web app we were building. And so it had a huge permission system to it, and I put one guy in charge of that. You know, another part was these wizard-driven forms, these multiple-page forms and the way that the state machine worked and everything. That guy really knew that well. He's in charge of that. But the database underlies all of it. You can't, you know, necessarily put one person in charge of the database because the permissions guy wanted to, you know, his stuff went down into the database and the form stuff went down into the database. So I saw it more as a vertical where everybody's stuff, the basement was the database of, you know, the part of the database that their stuff resided in. Right. So having one guy determine the entire database schema is a really tough situation. And it ended up getting to the point where since I was project manager on it, I finally realized because the rest of the team was telling me, look, you're just spending so much time and you're going back and forth between us and him and us and him. And, you know, we're not really getting anywhere. You just need to be a project manager and you need to put your foot down and make a decision for the betterment of the project and the team. Otherwise, we will never get out of the spin cycle. And it yeah. was on that day I realized – you know, I was failing. I was failing as a project manager because I wasn't exerting that authority. Finally, and that there is those times when you need a tiebreaker and you need that guy who is the authority. You know, the guy or girl who can say, "I'm going to come down on one side or the other." And the important thing here isn't even necessarily exactly if this is the right decision, but it is that we've made a decision and we can right. now move on. Right. Yeah. Totally. You know, I mean, there's there's hopefully an infinite time. If you have infinite time, you can all come to a clear decision and say, yes, this is the best idea. But sometimes uh, that investment of, of going through that process isn't worth it down the road. Right. You know, someone just needs to make a decision and we need to commit to it. Maybe you have an opportunity there to develop in such a way where um, you give yourself outs and you don't paint yourself into a corner. You provide yourself you know, appropriate modular modules so that you can kind of wrap things um, and maybe extend towards another direction in the future. But uh, you got to make a decision and start moving forward on something. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm also, I really don't like the idea because I have to live in code all day long of making mm-hmm. compromises. I'm not a big fan of compromises in projects. Right. You know, if yeah, it's you, like, want, you want quality, you know, you want something where you can come back to this thing and be like, OK, yes, I'm still confident about the way it was developed. I don't want to just throw it all out and start over. I want to just build on it. Um, and yeah, totally. Yep. So it's a really tough situation. And in those cases, I guess the only advice that I have is to find somebody who can just like it will you will feel so much better when a decision is finally made. And, you know, after a few days, it, it, you'll know when you're in this type of a situation. You'll right. know when there's just no – there's not going to be a natural conclusion. You will right. need to go to somebody who has the power to say, we will do this and be well, done with it. You have to start in, in a place where you identify that person with your, in your team. There does need to be some degree of leadership and authority at some point. You know, right. um, even if it's a small team, even if it's a, a, a startup type nature or something like that, where it's just a bunch of guys in their garage, someone has to be the decision maker, you know. And number two, if it's something as, as um, important as an underlying data structure or a data schema, you probably want to make sure everyone has their eyes on it and some degree of agreement early in the process. You mm-hmm. know, even if you do have someone who's technically the um, most skilled at that, you want to make sure that the requirements and the um, technical design 
seems sound very early, you know, before there is a lot of time invested in the wrong path. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was one of my big lessons learned from it for sure was that Mm -hmm. we should have been looking at it as a team much earlier on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is your personal philosophy on promoting the team over yourself? So, yeah. Um, Early within my career, I I came to a point where I had to decide, you know, like how like there's there's that idea of like the dream job, you know, like you want to wake up and go to work kind of thing. And like, how do you keep that fresh and moving forward? Um, Some people do that, like, okay, how can I climb the ladder as fast as I can? Right. And how can I get the next uh, the next raise, the next promotion, the next whatever and like, there's so many um, layers of, of politics and um, personality and response from other folks within a team and within a structure that that uh, approach just seemed full of all kinds of potholes and and just um, opportunities for frustration for me. You know, if if I went down that road of just let's see how quickly I can climb the ladder, right? Um, and the other approach I saw was like, okay, well, let's just promote the company, um, make the company bigger and better and try to be part of something bigger than myself and just move this whole thing forward as fast and hard as I can. Again, you know, like that company at some point in time, I don't know if you guys have ever been laid off. I've been laid off. They're not going to need you the whole entire time, you know, so that you're going to, that's going to end up falling short as well. What I did realize though, was that, um, everybody I'm working with, you know, they're all in the same boat. You know, we're all working towards some kind of a project and some kind of a deliverable. If I can do something, uh, work a little bit harder so that their job is easier, right? So that they have um, the right tools in place um, so that they're not running into the same problems that I am over and over again. You know, when they come into my code, that it makes sense to them as much as it made sense to me, then. Uh, that dynamic seemed a lot more fulfilling, seemed a lot more um, supportive, not only to myself, but to the rest of the team as a whole. So the whole team can move forward in that fashion versus just one or two guys becoming rock stars and just leaving everyone else behind. Does that make any sense? I mean, that's kind of, you know, a pretty like philosophical. uh, I I think it makes sense. I, I think that sort of thing can be contagious too. Yeah, and that and that was a, a part of that. You know, I've had a couple of conversations um, post that like um, moment of clarification for myself, where people are like, "Dude, like, why do you put the time in that you do? You know, and why are you happy to put that time in?" And I told them, and they said, "You know, that makes a lot of sense." And that seems, you know, I, it was usually like as I was moving off of one company to another that those conversations came up. Right, but seems like a lot of people like connected with that and they're like, you know, I can see value getting up in the morning, going to a job and saying, how can I help the folks around me do their job better? You know, and putting an extra time in the evening means that those folks can go home. Well, Hey, maybe you get some good karma or whatever you want to call it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I might get, some time to go home a little bit early someday too, because those folks will put in time to support me on what I'm working on. You know, absolutely. When I when I hear about people like uh, and Kyle Neath from GitHub, 
who spoke at a conference I was at, or I read this blog post by one of the guys that works at Stripe, or you know any of these companies that seem to have lots and lots of great hackers there, and these people are working tirelessly and driving each other is what I find. When these people talk about what it's like to work there, they're seeing the level that other people are working at, and they're driven because of that to work at at least that level or higher. And you get this almost like healthy competition that happens among the team, and the team is pushing itself to higher, higher and higher levels. And when you look at a bad company, I think it's really easy to see how that can work in reverse very quickly. You get this feedback loop, and it either is going positive or it's going negative. It's very rarely staying right where it is. And it's something that people could easily start to see as well. That's kind of politics, and that's kind of like you just looking out for yourself, and so on and so forth. And it's it could be seen that way, but it's really just a matter of motivation, you know. Yeah, right. I'm gonna end up benefiting from this in the end, but is that really my goal? You know, is it is it looking out for me first, or is it looking out for the rest of the folks? If you kind of, you know. It, I'm trying to remember where I read this, but some way back in the day, there's like a, a, a social commitment type theory. Whereas if everyone gives back equally to the community, which they're in, then they will receive back what they've given. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of with that mentality, just kind of pour into your work and hopefully you'll, you'll get back what you've given. In my experience, that usually happens, and you become, you will get recognized for it, and you become indispensable. And hopefully, it also brings up the level of the rest of the team, or you're doing it because the rest of the team is at that higher level, and you're, you're you guys are pushing each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, it and it encourages you know the team to gel, the team to 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 connect in such a way where you know it, that group think type mentality, you know, sharing thoughts and ideas and all of that, and um, you know, if you find yourself stuck in something, you're not going to be stuck that long because you can easily just reach out to someone else in the team and they'll just like, yeah, let's, let's tackle that thing. We'll get that done. Let's do it. You know? Okay. Well, what happens if you're, if you're pushing yourself real hard and all of a sudden you realize that you've bitten off more than you can chew and you're getting overwhelmed? How do you deal with that situation? You, you got to admit to it is <laughs> the first step to that. You know, I've definitely uh, experienced that a couple times. Um, to the point where like, I still wonder if, if, um, the, if I got too far into it, you know, um, like I had a couple of projects where, um, the, the, probably the reality was that I wasn't going to, they were both like similar deadlines, right? They weren't going to both make it at that, to that deadline, you know, two projects assigned for the same amount of time, pretty equal workloads, one by themselves may not have even made it to that deadline, let alone two of them together, right? So the approach was, okay, well, let's make sure they're both progressing together. You know, they're, if they're, one's 25% done, the other one's going to got to at least be 25% done to show that they're moving forward. But it, got, it gets to a point where you got to go, okay, wait a minute. This isn't going to get to where it needs to be, and there's just got to be clarity and transparency, transparency within the team and say, look, I need someone else to come on and help me out with this thing, you know? Hopefully you don't get that uh, lazy slacker type, um, you know, label on yourself. But if if you're doing all you can, you're putting in all you can, then um, I think that's going to get recognized and it's going to be more of a, okay, it's good that you saw this. Let's get that fixed. Let's get some other folks on this. Let's get the right resources together. 
versus just, oh, wait, it's the due date. You know, we're supposed to be releasing this thing tomorrow and it's not done or it's in a totally half-assed state. You know, that's not going to be better than, you know, bringing the transparency up first, you know. Right. So basically, you know, you might feel a little embarrassed or ashamed that you have to, that you've, you've over-promised basically, right? And yeah. that, you know, you're going to have to ask for some help, but that's going to, that, that little acute pain or embarrassment is going to be far less than what you'll feel if you wait till the last moment and the deadline gets blown because of you. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us about the, uh, how to work in a team, Stephen. Uh, this is a topic that I think a lot of people could benefit from, you know, thinking about more and, and listening to some other people's experience of what has worked and what hasn't worked. Cause there's just a lot of landmines out there when you're working totally. in a team. Yeah. Navigating them is important. So with that said, let's jump right into our uh, Talentopoly links. Some of the, these are some of the noteworthy links that were posted on the website over the last two weeks. I've got five links here. Uh, number one, under the hood, rebuilding Facebook for iOS. Facebook recently announced, they just recently launched actually their new iOS app. And they did rebuild this thing. From scratch, the old versions had used a open source framework that they developed called 320. I've actually used it on a couple hmm. of projects, so it was pretty nice. But it was developed back in the heyday of uh, iOS before it was even known as iOS, way before there was an iPad. And they've just outgrown it, kind of got long in the tooth, they said. And a lot of iOS now provides, you know, there's a lot of it provided in iOS that they didn't need to replicate in their framework anymore. So they then, you know, they have they were using a lot of HTML5 in their last app, which actually, I knew the Gmail app used a lot of HTML5. I did not know that the Facebook app did. They, they did a good job with that, but it wasn't as fast because of it. You know, there was a it lot. It was awful. Really? I, I, I guess I'm not a big enough Facebook user to know. Dude, it was, the, it was awful. I mean, to a point where you just didn't want to use it. It was, it was so bad. Well, they, have you tried the new one? Yeah, yeah, and it's it is it's it's significantly better. They talk about why what they did in here, and they do reassure people that they literally went into Xcode and said create new project. So they started anew, but what they did was a lot of caching and a lot of Objective C. You know, they replaced the HTML5 with a lot of Objective C. But even when you're doing the Objective C, you really got to be mindful about all the ca- calculations that are going on, like in the layout. You know, if you have this many stories, this is how tall the view is. And they've cached a ton of that, and they've cached the stories so that when you reopen the app, it shows you the stories that you last had loaded, just make it seem a little faster. ton of things like that. And what I took away from this was kind of two parts, was that one, as much as they thought they were doing the right thing by having an HTML5 uh, app so they could write once and deploy everywhere, really just isn't the case these days because mobile is so important. You need to have a really great experience on mobile. Otherwise, you're, you, I mean, Facebook already is like half their traffic is coming from mobile. It's just crazy. You've got to have a great experience on there. And what that takes is for you putting the same time and, uh, and budget investment into it as you would your web app, which they've put tons into to date. But they really needed to build up a strong, robust platform uh, on iOS. And I think this is the final realization on their part that, okay, we're going to go all the way in. And when you read through this, there is an insane amount of technical uh, platform that they had to build out for this. This is not a simple application. Most people will Mm. never have to build an iOS app and that even compares to this, but they did. What do you, what do you guys think of this approach? Do you think they should have stuck with the HTML five approach? Oh God, no. 
<laughs> I, unfortunately, I don't think they could. They couldn't afford it. You know, I mean, it's it. You know, do, doing front end development, being a fan of HTML5, wanting more of that. There's still that point where, like, especially when it comes to iOS, if your market is so ingrained to a particular platform, then you better spend all your time and energies in that platform. And just, yes, it's great to have something that might fit on everything, but in this instance, you know, there's there's going to be way too much loss if they try to do, be everything for everyone. Well, and the other thing too is that they have a message, a messenger uh, application, and that has its own code base. And they wrote a bunch of code so they could pull the messenger app into, bring most of that code into the Facebook app, which seems a little crazy to me that they continue to have these two separate applications when one is monolithic and includes that other one in it. Why? Yeah. Why maintain both? But they are and. They're they're just experimenting with a lot of stuff and putting a lot of money and time now finally into mobile development. Yeah, no, I mean the the social uh, landscape on mobile is so much more important uh, now. Basically, it's the appropriate. It almost seems like it's the appropriate place for social to live because you want to do real time. Um, updates of what you're doing in your life, right? So if you don't have it there, you might. If they were to abandon their normal environments, right, the the desktop uh, web browser scenario, and just go totally social, they probably probably could just about be safe there because social or mobile is so much more um, finely tuned for social dynamic. You know, well, you do run into the problem of you have to wait for the whole update approval process for you to be able to iterate on your product. It's much, much slower than if you do an HTML5 app. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, the gated garden, right? I mean, that's the beast that they're stuck in. They are so. actually still doing some HTML5, interestingly enough, in, in this new version. They also implemented this their, this kind of concept. What they've done with the stories is that they, they can change the story. They can change the information that is in it because there are lots and lots of types of stories in Facebook. You know, through reading this, I realized that they probably even – you don't realize how many types there are. It's not just this is a link, this is a video. It's like iterations of that link story is a whole new type. And mm-hmm. the version of the iOS app that you currently have may not know how to render that new type of a link story, but it can fall back. And it can say, well, I can pull out the parts that are common in here that I do recognize, and I can render it in my old way. Hmm. Even though you're already sending me a new payload that has additional metadata in it that I don't recognize. But then when you do update your local client, then it's going to know how to read that all that new metadata and show the story in a better way. And an example of that is when they recently changed their pictures in the stories, very, very Instagram-y. They made the pictures very large within the newsfeed. Right, and, run side by side if you post it four or five at a time. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, and so if they make a change like that again with their new infrastructure now, you wouldn't necessarily see that update immediately. Even though they're already sending the payload with all that information, you'll see it when you do update your client. So it kind of decoupled what they can send the client from the actual client. They don't have to time the two perfectly anymore at a launch. Sounds like they paid a lot of attention to their API itself and just – the nature of that data and not, you know, backwards and backwards compatibility and forward compatibility and just like making sure everything still lives 
happily together at the same time. Yeah, I think they finally bit the bullet, and now they do have a true large platform, another large platform that doesn't really compare to the web app platform, but still is quite large, and they now mm-hmm. have to maintain that. And it, they're probably going to do the same thing for Android if they haven't already. Hmm. Yeah, well, the and- I'm, I'm an Android user, um, and it is ridiculously slow and uh, um, in- inconsistent. So, I mean, hopefully they, they would find an opportunity to do something there. Right. Problem there, though, is like, dude, you're working with a dozen different uh, platforms there because each browser or each phone has its own tweaks. At least with Apple, you have a consistent, these are just Apple phones. You know, this is iOS. There isn't a whole lot of variation. But then you have you know, memory usage, variations of the um, the Android deploy, everything else. It, it, yeah. I, I don't envy them whatsoever. <laughs> oh, no. They've tried to avoid it, but they can't. All right, link, yeah. link number two, burial. It's a font, and you, the cool thing here is that uh, just like other sites like Lost uh, Type Co-op, this uh, font can be purchased at whatever price you're willing to pay for it. And as long as it's above a dollar. No, no, no. You could actually pay with a tweet or Facebook. I didn't think I saw that. They made that very cleverly designed then because I just saw that it was one franc for light and two franc or one franc for bold. Is that franc or euro? I don't even know. I thought it was euro, but – Something Whatever. like that. It's not. It's, it's not U.S. dollars. Euros. Heroes. <laughs> <I love laughs> <those> heroes. <laughs> Franks. What? But like one euro. <laughs> I don't even know if it supports PayPal or like I didn't click buy, so I don't know how you actually go through with paying for this. But I like that business model. What do you guys think of that business model? Pay what you want. Think people just take advantage of it and you won't make any money? No, I think you'll make money. Well, I, let's I, go ask the the Radiohead guys. I know the. Did they uh, start that? Yep. Yeah, Indie Humble Bundle. I mean, they make millions every time they sell a bundle. And that's a pay as you pay whatever you want. Uh, yeah, no, model. I think there's definitely, you know, uh, I got it. Now I'm not going to remember who it was, but I went to the website and it was, it was, uh, no, it was uh, a Kismet, right? So now you, you, when you go and you, you want to register your WordPress API or to get the spam uh, filtering, um, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but whatever. That's um, how I've always said it. Uh, but you can when you go there, it's a slider, and it's like I'll pay thirty dollars a year, and you can then slide it down to zero. What was interesting is I haven't seen I haven't seen a slider uh, for a pricing model in that respect, and I and I felt bad dragging it to zero. <laughs> yeah, you did. It, was, it was a really weird experience. I mean, I did it. <laughs> it's the it's the shame factor. That's a good good idea that they like defaults because here okay so it says uh i'm looking at the site it says free download pay with a twitter facebook and then they that's for burial regular right and then there's thin light bold and then a package with all three and they want you to pay a certain amount for those but you can get the regular for free with just the the social advertising right but like if you have to actually slide down the slider to say I don't really want to pay anything on a cheapskate, then you yeah. might actually feel that, you know. I did. I really now, did. Or if now, they personally, did. I've never bought a font, right? I don't that. I haven't had that need, but you know, it, it might work for. I, I've bought yeah. some fonts lately, but I think too what can work is take a page from the Indie Humble Bundle and don't give away all the fonts using this pricing model. Give away all but the thin, let's say. And that if you pay above the average price that people are choosing, yeah. then you get the thin one for free. But don't don't sell the thin one. 
you know, give people a reason to meet at least what the average is. And then it becomes this game where the average is constantly moving up a little bit because you got to pay more than the average to get thin. So then you're Ah, guaranteeing that that the average keeps going up. So you're constantly calculating that average. Yep. Or, you know, they can just get a good documentary or something like that and get all kinds (laughs) of free advertising. That's probably what they need to do. All right. Our next link is JavaScript programming patterns. This is an article I thought you might find interesting, Stephen. Uh, it goes through a basic uh, use case here. Very simple uh, situation where you have three links on the page and you want when the person clicks. When it, <laughs> Sorry, guys. No problem. <laughs> Whenever a person. Sounds like you got some crazy kids over there. <laughs> we'll, we'll finish this up quick. Whenever, uh, I, when a person yeah, clicks on the link, then it changes the background color of the link. And so you've got a, a very easy little use case here, and they go through a bunch of patterns to figure out what's the best way to, you know, what are all the different patterns you could use to accomplish this. And some of the ones they mentioned, I like that one of them is called old school. It's the old school way. That needs to be mentioned. And then they talk about the singleton pattern. They talk about a module pattern, which uh, Douglas Crawford uh, he calls right. this the module pattern, and mm-hmm. then they go on to talk about some of the other ones here. If you're interested in in different JavaScript uh, ways to organize your JavaScript, I think this is something you'd find very interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, just the idea, like, um, what do you want to call it? The gang of five or whatever it is, and then just the object oriented programming and starting to reapply that to JavaScript. I think that's going to take people a, a long way in just introducing them to um, thinking about these patterns purely in terms of JavaScript and not in terms of, well, if I was in Java, I'd do it this way. And that kind of looks like that because you see that pattern happen a lot, <laughs> folks. Right. You know, versus just like this is how you do it in JavaScript purely in javascript you know yeah it's neat that we're we're really giving it a lot of thought and kind of figuring it out now it's kind of the wild west and you know exactly cool and they're starting to, to put some structure around it and and you know just people's experiences and and reinforcing that all right link number four is there a landmine hidden in amazon's glacier for those that don't know amazon recently released a new service called glacier it's part of their aws suite of services and it's aimed at primarily enterprises or anybody who has a large amount of data that they want to store, they want to archive it. So you're not going to be accessing this sort of data often. You just want a really cheap way to save it. And Glacier allows you to do that at incredibly low rates. Uh, I don't have the rates right in front of me, but I, I remember it being something like a penny per gigabyte or something. What, where the, where the, this hidden landmine really comes in, though, is that if you do want to access this data very quickly, let's say you want to pull down a terabyte at once or a terabyte within a, you know, 20 minutes, that's going to cost you a lot of money because they're storing this in a way where it's not that, it's, it's not that easy for you to get tons of that data back quickly. That's kind of the trade-off you're making. You're making this agreement to say, well, I want to store 100 terabytes worth of data as inexpensively as possible, and I may actually never need to access this again. And if I did, I would hopefully know what parts of it I need to access and just pull down a few gigabytes. So that that is, if you're going to use Glacier, that's what this article is all about: is is uncovering that landmine it's not that it's all that it's not all that clear looking at their pricing guide how much you could be paying if you made the mistake of 
requesting almost all of that data back quickly. You could be in for a very large bill. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. That would that would be a bad day at the end of the month when you get a tip. So they, yeah, they're charging you more for the down than the up. That's yeah. That's definitely, yeah. Yep. It sounds like a sneaky trick to me. Well, I wonder if they're somehow offlining this stuff. You know, they're really – it's not that available really anyway. You know, they're having to go through some hoops to make it available to you again. You had some poor bastard running around there. <laughs> Plugging drives in real quick. Right. Someone, it is on tape. It, it, you know, it goes through that air tube and drops down <laughs> someone's bucket. And he's like, God damn it. Well, yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of people, a lot of people are thinking this is on tape. Like, why do they have to keep pulling back their wedding anniversary every year? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our, our last the video never changes. You've seen it already. Exactly. Oh, beautiful. Our last uh, link is Open Hallway Simple Usability Testing. This is an uh, inexpensive service that you can use to set up some test scenarios. It will then farm that out to their users who you can see uh, actually go through using your software. And, uh, and it will record that video so that you can play that back and see, oh, wow, that is actually confusing. What I thought was really simple in our software is confusing five out of seven people that tried this. Their plans start at $49 a month and go up to $200 a month. And that's basically based on the number of uh, the amount of gigabytes worth of video that you want to store, the number of hours. Their website's ugly as hell. It is. But and, and, they've, and they've got the Don't Make Me Think book. Right. Well, it may convert well. I don't know. Sometimes these ugly ones convert well. But they do have a video, right? I mean, they've done some of the stuff that you're supposed to do right on the landing page, like video right. and. They've got their conversion buttons front and center. and I think this type of service is important, though, to be able to get insight into whether your software really is usable. What do you guys think? Yeah, I hope more companies are putting more time and money into, into doing this kind of real testing. You know, So whatever tools they find um, usable, definitely a good thing. I, and I think people who are getting the software even designed for them, maybe they're not the developers – but they're the clients, mm-hmm. I think they are too biased and too close to the product to be able to properly assess whether it's usable. Whether you know, A lot of times they're dictating right. the overall look and feel of it. And so they're so mm-hmm. close to it, they can't tell you whether this is usable. And then what recourse do they have? They go out to their friends and family. You know, They reach out to their personal networks and get them to use it. And those people don't want to give them harsh feedback because they have a personal relationship with them. So I think a service like this is important because these are complete right. strangers and they're starting at you know step one. They know nothing about your product. So your website, they're just like the average person who will Google for you and find your site. You know they you need to tell them everything, and you're going to very quickly, hopefully, realize where you're going wrong, where you're you know the voids you need to fill in, and kind of hold their hand better through the process. So I think that's pretty interesting. Well, I thought it was interesting. They actually like encouraged posting on social media or something like that, and just having complete strangers come in and click through your stuff and it's like wow i mean you're you're really going to get and well you might have some kind of um uh, you know preconception because they've already at least liked you on on facebook or whatever right but it seems like you get a pretty clean um non preopinionated type uh you know response from this thing so yeah i i'm, I'm going to try it out and then I will report back and you know let everybody know how this type of thing works. I'm excited to try it. All right. See well, if the videos actually work on uh, 
you know, different environments. Things yeah. Like that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, uh, Stephen. It was a lot of fun talking to you about this stuff. Yeah. Thanks. I loved it. And Brandon, thanks <laughs> for being on the podcast, buddy. <laughs> we will uh, catch you guys next time. And as always, if you like what you've heard, uh, find us on iTunes, find us on Instacast, find us on uh, the Zoom Marketplace if that thing's still around. And vote us up, leave some reviews, 